Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. There are three unofficial holidays worth recognizing this week with National Prosecco and National Filet Mignon Days falling on Saturday and National Garage Sale Day falling on Sunday, which is strangely appropriate because you're going to need the extra cash to pay for the filet and Prosecco. Not exactly budget-friendly choices right now. What she said, though, remains gloriously free, including hangover and calorie-free, so kick back and relax as we jump into today's show, starting with Samantha Krishnapalli from On Canada Project. The On Canada Project intentionally disrupts social conversations by bridging information gaps and using a compassionate tone that calls people into conversations rather than calling people out. Over the next five months, Samantha will be joining me to discuss some hard topics that bring in facts and data so that we can all have more informed opinions. Today, we're tackling the topic of sex workers. Jenny Poole is the owner of Happily Ever After Books, Canada's first romance-exclusive bookstore. Of course, we could all use some more love and romance in our lives, so Jenny shares why this genre of literature is so important and how you can always get your fill from her online store or pop-ups. Anne Brody is here with her Saturday Night at the Movies Roundup, which includes a look at The Princess on Crave that looks at the sad saga of Lady Diana Spencer's entry and exit from the royal family. Emergency Declaration, an anxiety-inducing film, which combines a deadly virus on board a plane that no one will let land. Five Days at Memorial on Apple TV Plus looks at the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina on a New Orleans hospital, and the fun and lighthearted A League of Their Own is available now on Prime Video. Last year, the world watched in horror as desperate Afghan women and girls tried to escape Taliban rule when the U.S. and NATO forces pulled out. But Laura Dietz and Sarah Gillum sprung into action, forming an NGO called Task Force Nix. Task Force Nix fights for the futures and freedoms of all Afghan women and girls by amplifying the voices of Afghan women's rights leaders and providing emergency humanitarian support to the most at-risk activists and their families. Laura and Sarah join me to discuss. Ask any new parent what they want the most and they'll likely reply, sleep. Astrid Locke and Kevin Went are no exception. Since appearing on The Bachelor, the couple has put down roots in Toronto, got engaged, added two pups to their family, and welcomed their first child, Augie, in November of 2021. They join me today to discuss how they are all getting some much-needed rest with the Owlet Baby Monitor. Finally, if you haven't embraced TikTok for your small business marketing needs, what are you waiting for? Wave Wild is a TikTok marketing and trends expert. She has helped over 400 clients grow their TikTok accounts through consulting and courses with a community over virality approach and joins me to share why you shouldn't miss out on this powerful tool. 
It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. But you're just a boy Come on Let's talk about sex, baby Let's talk about you What She Said has partnered with On Canada Project for the remainder of the year to bring you monthly segments that break down today's biggest issues. The On Canada Project intentionally disrupts social conversations by bridging information gaps and using a compassionate tone that calls people into conversations rather than calling people out. Samantha Krishnapalli is the founder of On Canada Project and joins me today to discuss sex work in Canada and why our focus needs to be on further decriminalizing it rather than legalizing it. Welcome back, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to have this conversation today. I am so excited to have all of the conversations we're going to have because I think what we need is just a calmer approach to a lot of these big topics. But today, sex work is a big one. So what is it? And what's the current model in Canada? For starters, sex work is work, um, and it's defined as a consensual exchange of money or goods um, for sexual services among adults. And I think that's like where we have to start with this conversation is understanding that sex work is in fact work. And then as we continue it, let's think about what we're doing in Canada. So in Canada, we have a Nordic model of sex work legislation, which criminalizes the purchasing of sex, while decriminalizing sex work. Off the top, that sounds kind of good. You're like, oh, that that makes sense. Punish the person seeking it, not the person providing it. Um, but in practice, it's actually extremely harmful uh, setup and it pushes sex work further underground, which reinforces the stigma and makes sex workers even more vulnerable. To be clear, we wouldn't have a system in this world, really, that criminalizes a client paying for something. Um, but not the selling of like it's it's a really weird sort of situation. So it's very clear that we need to continue our path to de- decriminalizing sex work so that we are able to provide access to healthcare for sex workers. You know, to reduce police brutality, to protect sex workers against violent clients because that does happen, um, and to give sex workers access to legal justice, uh, which the current setup in this Nordic model doesn't really allow for. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's just something for us to be thinking on. It, yeah, it's a little weird when you when you frame it that way. I, I'm thinking like, uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, go, you know, it would be like going to my hairdresser and being charged for paying my hairdresser money to do my hair. In no other situation on earth would we frame anything like that. <laughs> Why are we so hung up? Like, what what are the biases that you we think we need to start sort of breaking down when it comes to this? Because either... You want to do this as a career or you don't. So, I mean, if somebody's doing it for a living, who are we to judge? Yeah, and I think that that's the really important thing to break down. Like, if someone is doing this for a living, like, sex work is work. And I keep saying this because it bears repeating. Sex sex workers are women, men, non-binary folks who engage in consensual acts, whether it's porn or cam work or dancing or massaging or escorting or having sex with somebody. Um, and that's all done consensually. It's, you know, it's their choice. It's a choice of the person they're with. There's an exchange of goods and services. Like it's just the way everything else works in our capitalistic society. So it's, it's confusing us to 
why this is a thing that we refuse to acknowledge and, and, and give the sort of labor rights to. What I think is really important to note is that there's a huge misconception around sex work uh, being the same as human trafficking, and it isn't. Sex work is consensual. Human trafficking is not. Um, all of the stuff I listed that sex workers do, if it's the choice and decision of a sex worker, that is sex work. It's a regular job. But the moment you're forced to do those things uh, or manipulated into doing those things uh, and sort of put into the cycle of abuse to do these things, that's when it's human trafficking. Um, and that's a different issue. So I think we still need to be critical of that. Definitely, but we can't act as if they're both one and the same because they are not. Does the current system then, does it really sort of set up this where women are being taken advantage of still because of this sort of weird way of criminalizing one side and not the other? I think that it does. And that's really unfortunate because our goal should be to ensure that people are able to feel safe when they're doing work. One of the things, like, I think when, if I felt unsafe at work, when I was a barista at Starbucks, if I felt unsafe um, and there was an issue, I knew I could call the police and that they would come and they would help handle the situation. But that's not the same for sex workers. Um, They're often, you know, experiencing a lot of abuse by the police, including assault, unwarranted searches and arrests, intimidation, harassment. Um, And this is like, there's a lot of over-policing and prosecution that again, disproportionately affects BIPOC and trans women, which is exhausting because I feel like that's always the thing that gets, you know, people that get uh, disproportionately impacted. And it's almost impossible for sex workers to find legal justice um, because the system isn't set up to benefit them. And I think that's what we really need to stop and think about is that if people don't feel safe reporting abuse, and if, which is what our current system does, that like their their livelihood is threatened because they're not able to report when something goes on that's dangerous because they're not taken seriously. And I think there's like a stat that says less than 5% of sex workers will report abuse because um, there's distrust in the police. And that that's a horrible statistic. They should feel comfortable going to the police um, because our police is supposed to, in theory, protect people, you know? Um so, yeah, I just I do think that it's really important for us to further this conversation around decriminalization because the current system isn't accessible and safe for sex workers. OK, then let's talk about some success stories around the world, because there are models uh, that we can look to that are working successfully. So can you share a couple of uh, examples with me? Yeah, I think so. Decriminalization has happened in New Zealand where they fully decriminalized sex work in 2003 with the goal of safeguarding the human rights of sex workers, which I love, protecting them from exploitation and promoting their health and welfare. After the law passed, the focus wasn't on sex workers as being criminal, but on their rights, safety, health, and well-being. Um, and a 2008 study found that sex workers in New Zealand felt more comfortable reporting any sort of abuse to the police without the threat of imprisonment, and we were able to insist on safer sex practices and reject clients because they should be able to reject their clients, but they can't in a situation where they're, you know, further underground, less access to decent clients um, and so forth. So I, I just I love this story. I love hearing that there are countries out there doing this. Um, and another really great example is uh, in New South Wales, in Australia, decriminalized sex work 
like happened way back in 1995 after an investigation found that police were unfit to hold power over the sex industry. Um, and the investigation recognized that criminalization led to the corrupt and major health and safety risks of sex workers and the community as a whole. A 2010 study found that in New South Wales had the best sex work, sex work safety and support measures in Australia due to decriminalization and reduced police power. Um, and again, decriminalizing isn't the same as legalizing. When you decriminalize, you're eliminating the laws around it. You're preventing the federal government from intervening in sex work-related activities. You're deprioritizing the arrest of sex workers and over-policing, and you're providing sex workers a pathway to justice in the criminal legal system. So all these are all things that I think we should be obviously moving towards. And I know that there are organizations out there that if people want to throw their weight and their voice behind uh, to to help further this, they can get involved. And you have that all listed, but can you name a couple? Yeah, if you if you go to our website, you can check out this the posts that we wrote on sex work being work. But some of our favorite organizations is Action Canada, Swan Vancouver, and Butterfly CSW. Um, I highly recommend checking those out and learning more about what you can do to make sure that we as a country dec decriminalize sex work. Okay. On Canada Project is continually addressing big issues, big societal issues like this. Uh, you guys are doing an amazing job breaking down these conversations. So I want people to be able to continue to follow you because not just for this conversation, obviously for many conversations. Uh, so where can they do that? Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram at oncanadaproject.ca and you can also check out our website where we have some blog posts up, which is oncanadaproject.ca. All right. Incredible. Samantha, we will see you next month. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Who doesn't love the thought of being in love? Since time began, romantic love has been at the center of our humanity, which might explain the power of romance novels. Jenny Poole is the owner of Happily Ever After Books, Canada's first romance-exclusive bookstore. A lifelong seeker of love stories, Jenny can almost always be found reading a romance novel, chasing after her seven-year-old, or spending time with her husband, her very own Happily Ever After. She joins me today to discuss how she's keeping love alive with her online bookstore and pop-ups. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. When I think of romance novels, I have to tell you, I always think of Fabio with his hair flowing in the wind <laughs> and those Harlequin romance novels. And, you know, I remember my mom reading those pretty religiously uh, when I was younger. What's the draw of those novels? Because we know they're kind of formulaic, right? Yeah, I think so definitely in the Fabio era of romance novels. Um, and he's been on many, many, many covers. I think, you know, it, it definitely had a time and place. But I think 
you know, it, it was a little bit escapism. It was fantasy. You know, that's kind of, that's how it was sold. But I think, you know, the modern romance genre is a little bit more nuanced. You know, we've, we've come a long way from, you know, they were mostly historicals, you know, mostly taking place in sort of a Jane Austen era, sort of um, fantasized England. <laughs> and, and that sort of, that's, that was sort of, that was it, you know, it was, it was very escapism. It's very, it was fun. It was, you know, a little bit sexy, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think it's definitely over the past, you know, several decades, we, it's come a long way to, to be something much, much more than that. And how have the, these novels evolved? And I'm sorry, I'm not a romance novel reader. So this is, you know, I, I'm interested. Have they evolved from sort of, you know, the old, uh, you know, uh, way of thinking, I guess? Are they more modern in how women are treated and how men treat women? Absolutely. Like, hands down, that is, that is one of the things that I think even in I'll start with yes. Let, let me let me break this down for you. So yes, romance novels have evolved over time. As society has evolved, so have romance novels. Um, not to say that they don't provide um, entertainment value and some sort of escapism, but I think that for the most part, uh, romance novels are written by women or by, you know, for... Uh, a significant portion are written by women. We, there's also a significant portion written by non-binary individuals and other individuals from the LGBTQ community. And I think that as society has embraced that more, has has made has has given sort of more, I guess, has given more publicity and more freedom to that we've seen romance change in so many ways and you know it 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 does definitely have to do with how women are treated in romance novels way back in the day versus now and even in historical romance that's written today um, and in the last several decades with things like Julia Quinn writing Bridgerton which is very very popular right now you know even that you can see the change from the Julia Quinn books from 1999, which is when the first book was, was published to the historical romance that's being written today by people like Sarah McLean and Tessa Dare. It, it continues to evolve and gives the female characters in these, in these historical romances, it gives them so much agency and, and respectability. And there's, it's always evolving for sure. What prompted you to start this business? Well, like I said, I've I've always loved romance novels and I've always loved bookstores. I was one of those and books in general. I was one of those very annoying children who would rent like or borrow like 40 books from the library uh, because I needed to I needed to read all of them. Like there was I couldn't choose. I had to read all of them. And so I've always books have always just been a huge part of my life. And, you know, I over the past couple of years, I think a lot of us have sort of had to reevaluate how we see the world and what we want uh, from our lives. And I, you know, I was just talking to my sister and I was, you know, if I could do anything, what would I do? And it was like, I would open a bookstore and it would be all about romance. (laughs) And then I was like, but if I actually did that, 
I would be the first in all of Canada. And that was like daunting. And I was like, well, what if I failed? And then I was like, but what if I didn't? And I was like, well, if I'm going to do it, I might as well be the first one to do it. So here, I'm going to do it. I love it. And you're online, which is really uh, quite modern as well, because, you know, bricks and mortars uh, stores would limit your customers, but you're available to anybody around the world, right? Yeah. So we primarily right now we are, uh, we can ship to Canada, the United States, just because of the specific um, taxes and related to the UK and, and Europe, we have a little bit more of an issue, but right now we ship anywhere in Canada and anywhere in the United States. Um, and yeah, we, we do reach a, a quite a wide variety of people. Um, it is my goal to eventually become a brick and mortar bookstore, but of course we would not get rid of our online portion, but it, you know, I really, I would really love to create a place that is almost like a little community hub for people who love romance, who want to come and find other people who love romance to talk about it. And and we've been able to do that in some of our pop-ups. Um, and it's so wonderful f- to me, for me, to see people come into my little pop-up that is only two eight-foot tables filled with books and to see these readers being like, oh, I love that book. Oh, did you? Oh, oh, well, have you read this book? And it, it's it's just amazing to see. And and so that, it, it just keeps solidifying over and over the fact that it was the right decision. I love it. And I love that you're sharing these books with everybody. Jenny, where can people find your store? So we are online at http happilyeverafterbooks.ca. It's .ca. Make sure you get that part. Um, we can also, you can also find me on all of our socials. So on Twitter, we're H-E-A underscore books. And then on Instagram, you can find us happily ever B-K-S. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was fun. Thank you. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Anne Brody. And this week, we're kicking things off with The Princess. We've had a lot about Princess Di over the years, but this one looks like it's the definitive uh, biography. Yes, that's the word, Candace. It's absolutely riveting. And I must say, it's so, it's, the whole vibe is funereal. You know, when they show um, Charles and Diana ignoring each other at public events, and you can see him knock her when he walks by her and there's always Camilla's face somewhere in the background it's it just a huge betrayal against the princess um it's a very clever very clever very convincing uh documentary that I think people need to see it's more about Charles Charles bad behavior than anything that she did um you know and they also the filmmakers chose to leave quite a bit of it silent which is only drives it home more because you're filling it in with your own thoughts and feelings. It, I, it's just sensational and it's on Crave. So just shy of the 25th anniversary of her death. Okay. Uh, I, I watched the trailer for Emergency Declaration and all I could feel was extreme angst and stress watching this uh, trailer. 
<laughs> it feels like it's pulled in a little bit of everything of everybody's fears. <laughs> yes, indeed. It is quite a sojourn to get through it. But I must say, the first two chapters are absolutely riveting. By the third chapter, it gets a bit hard and you're a bit like worn down from the anxiety, just as you say. But it's about, okay, let's let's talk about it. A young tech guy who's been fired from his job actually four years before goes to a flight. He asks the, the attendant, uh, which flight is the, um, is the most packed? I want to be on the fullest flight. He, he won't answer why. So he has something in mind, obviously. He manages to get aboard. They leave and he releases a virus. Um, and he's one of the ones killed. Just so startling. And this, but it's done in a very realistic manner, not as a horror film. And they, the plane is not allowed to land anywhere in the world internationally. It's coming from Seoul to Honolulu, but nobody will accept it. So, and they're running out of gas, they're running out of food. Most of the passengers are sick, the pilot dies. Honestly, it's a hell of a ride. Uh, I think that's everybody's, I mean, we've all lived through enough the last couple of years. That's just, a nightmare. So, okay, let's let's move on because we've got so many to get to. Um, five days at Memorial looks incredibly stressful as well. Oh dear, it's another tense one, but it's not as hard. Not as hard. It's about what happened at Memorial Hospital in New Orleans when uh, Hurricane Katrina clipped it. It was fine. It wasn't actually hit, but the rains came down and the levee broke, and the hospital began to flood, the water came through the ceiling, and they didn't know what to do with all the patients and the people just seeking shelter who were coming there. It stars uh, Cherry Jones and Vera Farmigan. There's an interview I did with them on the site. Um, and they do their best. And it reveals a lot of things that I certainly didn't know had happened, like mercy killings. Um, but it, it, it's really good. It, it's not relentless the way the way emergency declaration is. But it, it shows what kinds of obstacles officials and people who seem to know what they're doing, this pressure they're under. It, it's absolutely incredible. And shot in Toronto. It's on Apple. Okay. Good to know. Uh, okay. Let, let's lighten the mood just a little bit because i got to tell you, I'm super happy to see the return, or I should say the adaptation of a league of their own. This looks joyful it looks happy it is it is it's about women who it's the same story as the madonna film and rosie o'donnell film uh about a women's league of baseball that uh, went through the states and in canada a friend called me up and said her mother was in a league in ottawa so what they did is is create this league because all the men were over fighting the war um and it was a real sort of hive of activity and progressive thinking and women being able to do things for themselves now you know they they didn't they didn't have to stay at home and be the good wife and mother and there's also sort of a growing awareness of of uh, varied sexuality and these aren't well-known stars actually the wonderful dale dickey plays um the uh, coach but these girls are such great character actors. And as a matter of fact, I have interviews, an interview with two of them on the site. It's really delightful. And they're fun. They have a lot of fun together. They fight. They, they make things up in, in you know, grown-up ways. It's 
really lovely. And it's not only straddling the sort of zeitgeist of today and what we know and learn, Me Too and everything, but it also retains that vintage charm of the 40s and of the original film. So you're going to love it. It's on Prime Video. And I have to say, one of the characters in it was Janet in The Good Place. I, I don't know her name, uh, her her name in real life, but she played Janet on The Good uh, The Good Place, and I loved her in that. So I'm so excited to see her in this. So, uh, okay, so you've got these and a whole bunch more over on WhatSheSaidTalk.com, uh, including a look at Emily the Criminal, which you also say is excellent. So uh, I encourage people to go check those out, and you'll be back next week with more. Wonderful. See you then. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. Through the dust of Mexico. Every one of them except for me survived, and I am still alive. If you think that you can't make a difference, you need to stick around for this interview. Laura Dietz and Sarah Gillum are co-founders of Task Force Nix, a women-led, all-volunteer NGO which fights for the futures and freedoms of all Afghan women and girls by amplifying the voices of Afghan women's rights leaders and providing emergency humanitarian support to the most at-risk activists and their families. Together, they have more than 40 years experience as refugee relief and resettlement volunteers. They join me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Laura and Sarah. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Candace. This is a monumental undertaking. It started in August of 2021. Was there a moment that prompted you to start this or was this sort of something that evolved over time? I, I'm kind of curious to see if there was a different moment for each of us, actually. But the way that we became involved is that an Afghan friend of mine from my home state reached out and mentioned that he was trying to help get family members of his onto one of the U.S. military planes that was going to be departing Kabul at the end of last August. Um, and so I thought, you know, I'm kind of a politically minded person. I, I can contact my elected officials. I can sort of reach out to I used to live in Washington, D.C. Maybe there's someone I know that could help in some way. And when I when I approached this, that was the level at which I expected to engage. And then very, very quickly, first of all, because you're working under quite intense circumstances, um, but also because we've been privileged to meet some extraordinary families, um, our hearts became invested in this work. And so when those families did not make it onto an evacuation flight, we knew that their story was going to continue. And then as we as we sort of said, you know, one family became five, became a dozen, became, you know, referrals of my cousin or my sister or this kind of thing. And so very quickly we jumped feet first into this work. But I think it was those those early connections with those first families where we just really felt like there are humans just like us on the other side of this crisis. And it's our responsibility um, as citizens and as humans to somehow get involved. Yeah, those were real gut-wrenching images that we were watching last year of, of of those people trying to get on planes. It was anxiety-inducing watching it. I can't imagine for people living it. Uh, why the name Nix? Where does that come from? 
So we're a women-led, women-founded nonprofit, Candice, and we're operating in a, you know, environment which is primarily driven by organizations with some military background. Uh, Nyx is the Greek goddess of night, and she was the daughter of chaos and was only the only god rumored that Zeus himself feared. And so we thought that that established the strong feminist female energy that we wanted to bring into this work. And, you know, strong female energy. Let's talk about some of the numbers and some of the impact you've had. It's quite impressive. Can you share, please? Since August last year, Candace, um, we've supported the evacuation of over 225 at-risk Afghans and their families to third countries. And the majority of them, 70 percent or more, are already in their final country of resettlement with asylum applications underway. The other 30 percent uh, have existing and outstanding pathways identified. So they're just in the process. And this approach was very important to us um, because of our decades of refugee resettlement experience. We understand how important it is to do this work ethically and to ensure you're not just moving people from one country of risk into another situation of, of uncertainty. It's really important that you put in the time and the effort to ensure that they do have durable and dignified resettlement pathways in place. In addition to sort of that evacuation and resettlement work, we've also provided urgent humanitarian support to over 500 people. And you are, as I mentioned at the top of this, uh, you're all volunteer-led. So how many volunteers do you have now working with you? So at this point, we're up to seven volunteers on our team, although I would also note that we rely a great deal on the broader community of Afghan women's rights activists who not only bring us referrals and cases that we may be able to assist with, but also really are helping us understand the context of their lives and the experiences that they're having. And they're helping us make sure that we're approaching this work in, in, in ways that are, are respectful and thoughtful and centered their dignity at the heart of all that we do. Um, it, it's, it's generally Laura and me texting each other 18 hours a day, sometimes more. And then we've got some wonderful partners who work with us on specific tasks, for example, case management. Um, and we have on the ground coordinators who are supporting some of our families who are in in the process of their journey to safety now. But um, yeah, a small, small but nimble team. Everyone's got another job on their plate. Many have children of their own. So it's a it's a squeeze it into all of the empty spaces in our lives kind of kind of gig at the moment. That's actually a beautiful segue into my next uh, question, because you this is not your full time job. You all have other uh, other employment and this is what you do in your off time. How much time is this consuming uh, for you outside of your regular job? I mean, I think for me personally, it's probably around 40 hours a week. Um, on average, I would say um, I'm still pulling all nighters to say, you know, three, four in the morning quite, quite frequently. Um, but having said that, it's it's kind of an interesting thing in that while it's really exhausting, um, both physically and emotionally, um, for a variety of reasons, the trauma these people are experiencing, but also the difficulty it is in actually accessing the visa and resettlement pathways these women and their families deserve. It's also, you know, a humbling privilege in the work of a lifetime. And so I tried to explain to my husband my feelings about it. No, I don't love working till four in the morning, but I, it actually isn't hard for me to motivate myself to do, to do this work. You know, I, I, in, in a way, you know, I feel like there are so few moments in your life where you really have the opportunity to step up and make a, a life-changing difference in the life of another person. And this is one of those pivotal moments in history where 
women just like Sarah and I who are working moms. Between us, we have six kids and juggle school runs and whatever it may be, just like all of your listeners out there. The only thing that we have done is actually step up and cared and then continue day after day to step up and be there for these women. When people make donations to your organization, then how is that um, dispersed to help people? There are a variety of ways. We want to, of course, again, emphasize that we are an all-volunteer organization, so we don't have paid staff. Every cent that comes in is being used to support families on the ground. And that is a range of things, um, humanitarian aid. So we receive requests from, from families who are out of food, who need immediate food assistance and rent assistance. That's one way that we use funds. We've also recently provided some emergency protection grants when we've been in contact with an activist who is actively being pursued by the Taliban, is in a safe house or in, in movement to a new safe house, is trying to remain off the radar. We try to step in when we can and provide funding to just make sure that the family is getting enough to eat and that they're feeling that they're somewhere safe and secure. Um, And then also long-term sustainment. One thing that's really interesting is that even for the families we're working with who do have pathways to permanent third countries, generally in the West, in Western Europe, the U.S. or Canada, they may not, they aren't able to work if they're in a neighboring third country to Afghanistan. They're living there as refugees and their savings run out quickly and they need to be able to live and wait for that embassy interview that will launch that process that that brings them home ultimately. And so we really are kind of filling in the gaps where maybe some of the other larger NGOs aren't able to move as quickly or be quite as nimble. And also we're able as much as possible, of course, the need is very great, but to respond to people in the moment when they reach out with a very immediate need. Are you in need of more volunteers? I mean, I feel like people are probably listening to this thinking they might want to help out. So are you in need of more volunteers? I I think there's a yes and no question. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, check out our website, taskforcenext.org. Um, there's lots of great information on there, and that's the best way to stay in contact with us. Um, I think we're always in need of, of people who are passionate about this cause and really want to make a difference. And there's a number of ways in which you can do that. I think there's advocacy, um, working with elected officials to try to ensure that the promised visa pathways for at-risk women are available. I think the second thing is engagement, amplifying their stories. That's one of the central primary driving focuses of our mission is making sure the words that the women are saying about themselves and causes which matter to them are the ones that we're sharing and amplifying the most. And lastly, we need a dedicated team of people who really care um, and who would be willing to come on board, volunteer, and help us specifically on the fundraising front. You know, Candace, one point Laura made um, recently that I thought was so prescient is that we're sort of operating as both a humanitarian organization and a startup. And um, we're, we're kind of experiencing both sides of that coin and that we are pulling all-nighters, creating um, one-pagers and briefs and fundraising materials and filling in 36-page asylum visa applications. And then we're also trying to build out a team and raise money to keep a large number of families safe and secure for as long as they need it. And so you're absolutely right to decipher that we need a bigger staff. And as Laura said, there are a lot of ways that we can tackle this, but a great way um, it's just for people to also learn about Afghan leaders and Afghan women activists to find and follow them on social media. Um, we share a lot of their work on our own Task Force Nix accounts. So it's a great way to find some new follows and start hearing directly from the women that we've been working with these past few months. 
All right. You ladies are incredible. You're inspiring. I'm sure people are listening today and they're going to want to know more. So one more time, website, please, and social channels so people can connect. So I'll give the website. That's www.taskforcenext.org. And Sarah's our social queen. You know, it's very simple. All the same across Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It is Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook.com slash taskforcenext. So pretty straight shot to find us. And we would love NYX, yeah, and we would love to welcome your listeners, Candice. I feel like uh, I feel like they're going to be inspired by the work we're doing and their ability to be a part of it. I have the best listeners there are. So thank you so much for joining me, ladies. We're going to put all of these links in the podcast liner notes when it goes to podcast after it airs on all the radio stations. So thank you so much, and we'll have you back again soon for an update. Thanks so much, Candice. Thank you so much, Candice. Really appreciate it. We'll come back again and again. Ask any new parent what they want more than anything, and you'll likely hear sleep. My next guests can relate. Astrid Block and Kevin Went are Bachelor franchise alumni whose love story started on season five of Bachelor in Paradise. Since the show, the couple has put down roots in Toronto, got engaged, added two pups to their family, and then welcomed their first child in November of 2021. Talk about a whirlwind. They join me now to share how the Owlette Baby Monitor is helping them and their baby get some much-needed rest using an app right from their phone. Welcome to the show, Astrid and Kevin. How are you? Thank you for having us. So is it is it too late to say congratulations? I think we're in the first year. I can still say that, right? Never too late. Yeah. It keeps changing so much that it's never too late. Yeah. I have to tell you that, you know, my, my children are 19 and 17, but you, you will do this as well, I'm sure, down the road, is you'll say, why didn't they have this when my babies were young? Um, it's amazing. They're always just coming up with these great things to help new parents. So tell me what the Owlet app does. So the Dream Duo, it's, which is what we're using, has the camera, and then it also has a sock, and the sock is actually able to track the heart rate and the average oxygen level. And then the monitor is just like, the biggest lifesaver when it comes to being new parents because it takes sleep is really complicated and it takes that complication out of having to figure out when to put him down and when to get him up yeah we also just feel like you know if we're staying in a friend's house or something and we don't have the camera hooked up yet you're always listening and you're always on high alert thinking you hear him yell or whatever the case is and now we just have alerts right to our app or our phone that says he's awake or he's standing up crying um you don't have to you don't have to stress so much because you know the camera's got your back and yeah i remember as a new mom jumping at the sound of everything and then ending up disturbing my daughter's uh sleep because i'd go barging in the room to make sure she was still breathing it's that first child paranoia you have um so does it help you predict when your baby's going to need sleep i felt like i saw that somewhere yeah, so it does. It has that predictive sleep technology. So that's what I was saying earlier. It's really complicated when it comes to sleep, which you don't realize until you're parent. Like wake windows are everything. And if they're awake for even just like 10 minutes too long, it turns into a total tantrum trying to get them to bed. So what the app does, it'll calculate when they're due for a nap again based on what their sleep pattern kind of is. 
So you don't have to think about, okay, I got him up at two and now he's back due for a nap at 4.30. The app kind of already does that for you so that you can just enjoy that wake window and not stress about getting home in time or stopping whatever. Yeah. And it grows and it grows with him as well. Like his, his naps are getting longer, but we just dropped a nap, you know, last week. So it, it kind of stays on top of it as like now he's eight months old, his naps are completely different than when he was a brand new baby. So, um, it kind of takes the first time parents stress of like sitting outside the door, listening all day. It kind of takes that away. And, and that's why we love to talk so much. And has it helped you get more sleep? Well, I feel like as new parents, um, it's hard to give anyone advice because every kid's different. Every situation is going to be different. But one thing that everyone agrees on is, is like peace of mind is something everybody wants as a first time parent. And we have like no family around. It's just us and the baby kind of figuring it out on our own. Um, and I feel like the outlet gives us that peace of mind, knowing that he can stick on, take a peek, see that he's sound asleep and his heart rate's good. And, you know, we can go back to making dinner or whatever, knowing that he's, he's taken care of. So I think the peace of mind is probably the most important thing for new parents. And this definitely helps us achieve it. And so this is all done through your phone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you just link both the sock and the camera to the same app and you'll be able to monitor both. And so the sock is just, has a little, um, like, I don't know, what is it, like a sensor? Yeah, it's a sensor. Like, I don't know the exact science of it, but it's got a little sensor that touches the, like, bottom of their foot, and that sensor keeps track of all of that. And it'll keep track of the historic oxygen level uh, of the baby as well as the heart rate, so you can you can watch it throughout the day. Um, and it's just, again, it's another peace of mind thing, because like you said, when you were, you know, 19 years ago, you were just going into, like, see the chest rise, right? You just wanted to, yeah, so it kind of takes that peace of mind um, and gives you that peace of mind uh, as a new parent. I, I honestly, I feel bad for my oldest daughter because I, I believe she has terrible sleep habits because I interrupted her so much in the first year. <laughs> so this is great technology, a wonderful gift for new parents, obviously. Um, so congratulations. What's your baby's name? August. August William. Uh, lovely. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about Alette? Um, so their website, outletcare.ca, has all of the information. It's got that bundle and you can also purchase things separately. So you can find all of the info there. Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me today. So much. Sure, yes. Have a great day. Take care. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. If you are a business owner, you can't deny the power of short-form video marketing. So if you've been avoiding the camera, it's time to claim your power and get comfortable with video. Wave Wild is a TikTok marketing and trends expert. She has helped over 400 clients grow their TikTok accounts through consulting and courses with a community over virality approach. She specializes in helping brands and business owners use the app as a social media marketing tool to generate more leads and sales. She joins me now to discuss how small businesses can leverage TikTok for their marketing needs. Welcome to What She Said, Wave. Hello. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here and talk TikTok. 
Yeah. I mean, I so I told you earlier before our interview that I've been following you for about a year on TikTok. And I just, I love your videos. They're so informative and so helpful. And you make the app seem less intimidating. And I think that's probably what business owners are thinking right now is, how do I get into this? So what are some of the fears you hear from people when they, when you talk about TikTok? Yeah, definitely. So the app can be really overwhelming. It is um, a very different social platform. There's a lot of buttons and and things to navigate and figure out how to make the videos. Uh, so, you know, things that you can do is really just get on TikTok and start scrolling and, you know, start, well, you could watch some of my videos <laughs> to learn how to use the app. But if you start scrolling on the app, you'll start to well, here's the thing, like the TikTok algorithm is a recommendation system. So when you first join the app, you're going to see a lot of this, like maybe dancing and lip syncing. That's some of the more popular content. But that is not what's all on TikTok. And that's why people think that it's just for dancing and that it's just for teens. Um, what I suggest you actually do is go to the search tool, which is a magnify glass or the discover page and start to put in some words for your niche or your industry, and then see what types of videos come up and start engaging with those. And then, you know, the algorithm's going to show you more of that content. So if you just go on the For You page and you start watching cute cat videos, it's going to show you more cute cat videos. So you want to do some research, go find, you know, what is going on in your niche or industry already on the app and start watching those videos and get a feel for the TikTok culture and how things kind of work on the platform, how people communicate messages, information. And that's going to give you a little bit more sense of the app, give you some inspiration and give you a sense if you know, you start to feel like, you know, that you could do this too. You know, I think we've all heard about the, the viral videos and people's businesses exploding uh, overnight, but you know, that doesn't happen every day. So what can people expect, you know, when they look for, um, you know, when they look to build their brand online, what can they sort of expect uh, to get, I guess, from the community they build? Yeah. That's, that's really hard to say what to expect in terms of growth goals. So yes, one of the main appeals of TikTok is that there is more discoverability. It's a discoverability-based platform and you can build an audience really fast. And so a lot of people get really hung up on going viral. But I want you to know that you do not need to go viral or have hundreds of thousands of followers to make money, be successful in your business using TikTok. You just need to attract the right followers. I see this all the time with clients and students. Uh, they have small followings. They've just, you know, spoken to the right people, drawn them to their page, and then converted them through, you know, using multiple different things. Uh, but call to actions is probably the most effective. How do you help then, uh, you know, businesses hone in on, I guess, building that page for sure so i have um i have courses i do consulting uh so that's multiple ways that i work with clients but really you know a lot of it is marketing fundamentals uh when you know you're looking knowing who your ideal client is and we're just applying that to TikTok. there are definitely ways you can be optimizing your profile to appeal to your ideal client and then of course through your video content you need to make content that serves the, those people uh, and also it's helpful to know what they want in the first place. So hopefully you've done some market research in your business. How much time do you think people need to invest in TikTok if they're going to use it um, as a marketing tool? Uh, again, that's another tough question. I will say that there's a little bit of a learning curve at the beginning. 
and it might feel like it takes longer to make videos. Um, however, you know, I make videos now in five to 10 minutes and I have a ton of strategies on how to make videos really quickly. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, it is still social media. Social media is all about building relationships. So you do need to put some time into engaging, responding to comments. I don't recommend, you know, doing that uh, post and ghost method. Uh, so you need to engage with your, you know, the goal is to build that community, to nurture the audience, to move them the flow of traffic through your funnel or to your offers or services. You know, I, I have seen so many businesses, particularly in Canada, come up on my on my For You page that are incredible. And I never would have heard of them if not for TikTok. And I have to say, it's a wonderful tool for businesses to use for marketing. So I want people to be able to connect with you and find out more. Uh, how can they do that? Absolutely. You can follow me on TikTok and Instagram. My handle is at Wave Wild, my name. Uh, and you can also get more information on my website, wavewild.com. Okay, we're going to put all of this information in the liner notes when it goes to podcast. And Wave, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. If I were a boy, I would turn off my phone. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.